Good morning. I greet you in the name of Jesus this morning. I'd like to begin with a question for you. It's a short question, a simple question, and it's not a trick question. But I want you to think about it. The question is, who are you? And I almost didn't ask it because I never liked when people asked a question in this setting like that. Because no matter what you answer, it would probably be wrong. Because it seems like a trick question where where you're looking for, as if the questioner has something in mind. But I don't. I'm just asking you, who are you? Who do people, what do people think of when they hear your name? They know, they know you to some degree or another. When they hear your name, what do they think of? What are you known for? As part of our identity, we all have this something in us that we want to belong to something. Whether it's a church, a community, family. As part of who we are, we want to belong to something. Maybe it's your business. King Edward VIII had a father who was a real disciplinarian. As a young boy, as the Prince of Wales, when he had done something wrong, his father would say, My dear boy, you must always remember who you are. When I was in the youth group, sometimes some of us guys would go on trips and go somewhere, and I remember picking up, stopping to pick up uh, some of my friends to go when we went into the house to get their things. And as, he, as, as we were leaving, walking out the door, their mother said, remember who you serve. I remember that. Remember who you are. Because of who he was, as a son of King George V, there were certain things that were expected of him. My son, always remember who you are. He was expected to behave in a certain way. Isn't it true that our Heavenly Father looks at each of us this morning and says, My son, my daughter, always remember who you are. Always remember who you are. As Christians, there are certain expectations where certain things are expected of us as Christians. Places we go, our business practices, our speech, what we say, our attitudes, our response to authority. So when you're faced with a decision in life, and I wasn't sure what kind of a decision to call it, so I'm just going to call it a moral decision. You're faced with a moral decision in life. You may think, what will society think of me? If I do this, what will society, what will the people around me think of me? You might think, what will certain church members think of me? You might think, what will God think of me? And when I said that, you all thought, that's the, good, that's the one. And it is. But the others should weigh in there as well. We should be concerned about what society 
thinks of the decisions we make. We should be concerned about what other church members think of the decisions we make. But that needs to come under the umbrella, first of all, of what will God think of me? What does God expect of me? And then under that umbrella, what, what does the church expect of me? What does society around me expect of me? We'll either meet these expectations by feeling obligated and expected to act a certain way, or our actions and our beliefs will be a result of our love for God and we will then have these actions that will meet the expectations. Do you see the difference? One is doing it because we have to. One is doing it because we love God. We have a heart after God. We've set our affections on things above. And the result will be we will meet those expectations, but not because we feel we have to. This morning, I'd like to look at our identity with Christ and the expectations that come from that. Turn with me to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians, I'll be looking at the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3 this morning. And I'd like to remind you that this letter was not written in chapters and verses. It was written as a letter, the entire thing. And we are jumping into the middle of the letter that Paul wrote. Written by Paul to the Colossian church. So to get a background of the theme of the letter up to this point, we'll look at chapter 1 just a little bit to understand where he's coming from a little more. The Colossian church seems to have been a very strong, stable, steady church. Colossians 1 verse 4. I'll be flipping around in these uh, verses and chapters quite a bit because we're looking at it as a whole letter, but if it's like my Bible, it's one page you have to turn. So look, let's look at this uh, chapter 1 verse 4. He talks of their faith, their love for all the saints. Then go down two more verses. He talks about the gospel bringing forth fruit in their life. They were a a solid, stable, faithful church. In chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, they were identifying with Christ. He's thankful for the strength he sees, the ongoing growth that he sees in them. Then in chapter 2, Verses 6 and 7, they were identifying with Jesus Christ. It says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. I was impressed with how he taught this. Verse 6, he says, As you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. I thought that was an interesting way to word it, and so there's probably a purpose behind it. As you have received Christ Jesus, walk in him. Not as you follow and observe and obey the teachings of Jesus. He could have said that. As you follow the teachings of Jesus, keep doing that. He says, as you've received Christ Jesus, a personal thing. Received him into your heart as a, in a real and a personal way. I can see every one of you here today. You are real. He's saying, you have received Jesus into your heart and into your life in a real and a personal way. Keep doing that, he says. In verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7, they were rooted and built up in him. 
established in the faith as they were taught and abounding with thanksgiving. I get I just get the feeling they were a solid group of believers, rooted and built up. I picture a big tree. And you loggers would know better than I would here, but I've heard that as far as the branches are up above, the roots spread about the same underneath. A solid tree, hard to tip over, can weather the storm. That's what I picture of this church. Going back to verse 23 of chapter 1, we get the first hint of a little bit of danger that Paul sees. Chapter 1, verse 23. He says, if you continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature, which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. It seems that there was just a hint of danger here, danger of deception. He reminds them to remain grounded and settled in the gospel as if there's a possibility that they could slip away from that. There's an ongoing danger to be moved away. He says the hope of the gospel That is to be interpreted as assurance. That assurance that they have in the gospel. Don't don't slip away from that. And Paul is speaking to the church, the Colossian church here, but take it into your own heart and in your own life this morning as if he's speaking to you. Don't slip away from that assurance that you have in the gospel. Be, Be rooted, grounded, settled, established. These are all words that he uses to describe their their solid faith. Paul mentions three times here in this letter about the danger of, and he uses terms like being beguiled by enticing words. Chapter 2, verse 4, 8, and 18, he mentions this. What would that look like today if, if the Apostle Paul came in here and he stood right here and he said, don't be beguiled by enticing words and he's speaking to every one of you and he's speaking to us as, as a church collectively. What would that look like? What would he be thinking of? And what would you be thinking of? What does he mean today? Today it might look like unbalanced doctrine. These are the enticing words. Unbalanced doctrine. A God of love and no wrath. We don't like to think of the wrath of God, but that's an unbalanced doctrine. God is a God of love, but he's a God of wrath. It might look like reasoning biblical teaching away, reasoning it out of our life because it's uncomfortable. It might look like an individualistic spirit, not easily entreated. If we are not rooted and built up in Christ, we will tip over rooted in that strong faith and that commitment that we made to Jesus. Rooted in a determination to stay the course as difficult time comes, times come, strange times come. We'll need to make decisions. We'll need to adjust the way we do things and we've had to do that. But are we rooted and grounded up, established in the faith, determined to stay the course? With the opportunity and resources that we have at our disposal today, it's like no other people of any other time. There is really no excuse. We have no excuse not to be rooted and grounded in the faith other than our own spiritual laziness. We have got everything we could ever hope for to be rooted and grounded 
in the faith. The only excuse we have is our own spiritual laziness. But I really think if our Christianity is real and we have received Christ Jesus, like he said, received him into our life as a real person and have a real relationship with Jesus, if we have that, not simply adhering to his teachings, keeping it as something distant that's a good idea, we will find our identity first in Jesus. And he can look at us. Jesus can look us in the eye and he can say, my son or my daughter, always remember who you are. There's expectations. Things are expected of you. Always remember who you are. In chapter 2, and I, I briefly talked about this earlier, he brings out the concern and the danger of being led astray more plainly. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 4. He says, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Verse 18. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he had not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. So there is a danger. He mentions it at least three times and he alludes to it other times in some of these verses. But three times it's clearly mentioned the danger and the possibility of slipping away. And you and I are not immune from this. Don't think for a minute that you're immune from this. Colossians 2 verse 20. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men. I'm going to reread that, omitting the part that's in parentheses, and then I'll continue on to verse 23. So verse 20 again. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances after the commandments and doctrine of men? Which things ye have indeed a show of wisdom in all, in will worship and humility, and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. The people that were leading the Colossian Christians astray were those coming into them and teaching them that they needed to continue the Jewish law. They needed to continue doing things that God had required of his people before Jesus came. Adding to their salvation, adding to their, or, or putting requirements of things they needed to do in order to be saved. And we know we can't do that. Salvation is a gift. There's nothing you can do by yourself to be saved other than accept the gift of salvation. It's not something you do to earn. They were putting requirements on their salvation. You need to do this and this and this to earn it. And he gives an example. He says, taste not, touch not, handle not. Ceremonies and things they needed to continue in order to be right with God. In verse 20, Paul is telling them, if you're a Christian, you're dead with Christ. He says, you have renounced all hope of salvation from the observance of Jewish ceremonies. As a Christian, you've already done that. These ceremonies were only the rudiments. He uses the word rudiments. And Adam Clark in his commentary says this, these things were the first elements or the alphabet 
out of which the whole science of Christianity was composed. These things that they were trying to get them to continue to do. He says it's just just the alphabet. It's just the beginning, the very beginning. And all of Christianity is so much more than that. Jesus has come and fulfilled that. Set those aside. That same phrase, rudiments of the world, is used in verse 8 as well. So if you are in Christ, why are you still living in subjection to them, he says. Jesus fulfilled that part of the law. And I'd like to explain that very simply here. I know there's a lot more to this, but the Jewish law was, there were three parts to the Jewish law. The civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. The civil law is if you accidentally killed your neighbor, you could flee to a city of refuge. The ceremonial law were sacrifices offered for sin. And I'm just giving examples to, to divide them. The moral law is thou shalt not commit adultery. The civil law was for the children of Israel only. Today, I don't know that there's a city of refuge that we can flee to if we accidentally kill our neighbor. That was for them only. The ceremonial law was fulfilled by Jesus. In Hebrews, it uses the term once for all. Once and for all. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. So the civil law was only for them. The ceremonial law, Jesus fulfilled. And then Jesus raised the bar on the moral law. So that still applies to us. He says, if you look on a woman to lust after her, you're already committing adultery. It's not just the act of committing adultery. He raised that bar of the moral law. So I'm just trying to clarify what Jesus indeed, what he fulfilled here. And they were coming and they were, these teachers were coming into the Colossian church saying, you need to keep doing these things in the ceremonial law in order to be saved. To have your salvation, you need to do this and this and this. And Paul's saying, no, you don't. Jesus fulfilled that part of the law. I think it's worth clarifying that these traditions of men in verse 8 and then in verse 22 it says the commandments and doctrines of men are referring to these Jewish practices they were trying to, to make them do. The Jews were basing their salvation on these things and some of them were good, some were necessary. They were good, necessary and right ceremonies that God had set up in the law for that time there were foreshadowing that the work of Christ would finish on the cross. But then there were also some extensions to the law. Uh, we read about the Pharisees adding, adding things to the law. But what did Jesus say about those? He says, they are your spiritual leaders. You need to do those things that he has set in the law. Extensions to the law. But Paul said, don't worry about this. Don't. They're no longer necessary. They're fulfilled by Jesus. He's, and he gives examples in verse 21. Touch not. Don't touch this. Don't eat that. Don't handle this, which are all the, to perish with the using. He says they're done now. They've accomplished what they were designed to do in the Old Testament. There are two verses I'd like to look at before we go into chapter 3. And that's verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And then chapter 20 and 20, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 20 and 22. 
Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? I'm skipping over the part in parentheses. After the commandments and doctrines of men is in verse 22. These verses are used many times to discredit any church standard or extra biblical guidelines because we pick up on the phrases of traditions of men or commandments and doctrines of men. And so Paul is saying, don't do that. That's not what he's referring to. We, too, have traditions of men. We have commandments of men in this church that we follow. He's not saying don't follow that. The difference is they were telling these people coming in and beguiling them with enticing words were telling them you need to base your salvation on these things. The difference is if you want to use the term doctrines of men or traditions of men for our our guidelines here we don't base our salvation on it. That's the difference. We have extra biblical guidelines in our in our church here to help us maintain a unity within the brotherhood and to help us because of our own weaknesses and our own tendencies to lean towards the things of the world that's the purpose we don't base our salvation on it but the moment we do we're no different than this group that Paul is speaking to we can't base our salvation on our church standards. We can't make them a requirement for salvation. Both the Old and the New Covenant, both Old Testament and New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, have aspects of external obedience and an internal heart condition. Those two things. One is inside, one is outside. The Old Covenant, the focus was mainly on an external obedience. There was still an aspect of of an internal change or a love but the the focus of the old covenant was on an external obedience the focus of the new covenant is on an internal change a transformation in my heart by the renewing of my mind and the result will be an obedience Paul continues explaining why they should not be adding things as necessity for salvation verse 23 Chapter 2, verse 23, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will, worship, and humility, and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. That's a little difficult to understand in King James, so I'll read it in another translation. It says, these rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering the person's evil desires. So he's saying it may seem wise, but it it won't change your heart. We need to flip that around, change the heart first, and then the result will be a change in in action. After warning them not to be led into the rudiments that were simply an external observance of the faith, we go into chapter 3, which is the second half of this letter. And he reminds them of the freedom And the simplicity of a living walk with Christ. At the beginning of the message, I talked about expectations. So what are some expectations of a Christian? We could go on and on and on and on, listing what the expectations of a Christian are. 
Sometimes I think the world around us can see maybe more clearly and probably more consistently what's expected of us as Christians than we do ourselves. But here in a general way, Paul lays out some of the expectations of a Christian. Chapter 3, verse 1. If ye then be risen risen with Christ, or since you are, or because you are risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Since you have been raised in new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of the kingdom of God. We've talked before, and I think we understand the two-kingdom concept, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of heaven. Set all of your vision, all of your everything on the kingdom of God. I find that the terms that Paul uses here interesting. Going back to chapter 2, verse 20, he says, You're dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world. Verse 18, he says, We're buried in baptism, death, burial, I was, it, as I was studying this, it reminded me of our baptismal vows. And when you were baptized, you agreed to this. Listen to this. We say that we renounce Satan, the world, all the works of darkness, and our own carnal will and sinful desires. That's what you agreed to when you were baptized, to renounce Satan, the world, all the works of darkness, and our own carnal will and sinful desires. That means we are dead and we are buried. Chapter 3, verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ. New life. We are risen with Christ. We are expected to seek things that are above. And then Jesus can look you in the eyes and he can say, My son, my daughter, always remember who you are. Verse 2. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. I was thinking of this verse the last few weeks. And then I thought how well our Sunday school lesson fit into this this, uh, verse. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. We all live in the world. We make plans. We have jobs. We make a living. How you do that will reflect where your affection is. How you make plans, how you earn your living, will reflect where your affection is. The NIV says to set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. Luke 10, verse 27, And he answered, saying, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. Part of loving God with all our mind is setting our mind on things above. So where is your mind? What is the first thing you consider in making decision? Your well-being, the well-being of your family, setting your mind on things above. Again, it's as if God is looking at you saying, My son or my daughter, always remember who you are. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Now in verse 5, Paul lays out some practical expectations of those who are not in Christ. 
it's uh, some expectations coming from our natural desires and responses. Colossians 3, verse 5, he says, Mortify, put to death, kill. Therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which also walked, I'm sorry, verse 7, in, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them, but now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. These things are not right. They are not good, but they are expected from someone who has not died to sin, someone who has not risen with Christ, someone who is not seeking those things which are above and has not set their affection on things above. It's to be expected. Look at the list here. Verse 5, Mortify therefore your members upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence. The first four are of a sexual nature. And covetousness, which is idolatry. This is obviously something they struggled with 2,000 years ago, and it's no different today. You, you can look at this list and look at the world around us and maybe even look at the, the struggles of your own heart and you say, we can relate. It's no different today. The nature of man is no different than it was 2,000 years ago when this was written. Every single one of these things is relevant Verse 10, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. I like the contrasting terms he uses going through here. He uses terms like, for the negative, he uses dead or put off. chapter 2 verse 20 chapter 3 verse 3 and 3 5 he says dead to sin and the carnal way of thinking and now he refers to putting off when I when I read this he says put off these things I I picture an old coat or an old something that you take off you put aside it's not not partly on you you take it totally off and you leave it you leave it behind And then in contrast, he uses words like alive, risen, and put on. He refers to the transformed life as being risen with Christ in new life. In chapter 2 and chapter 3, he uses that term. But here in verse 10 of chapter 3, he says, put on the new man. It's like putting on this new jacket or something new. A new identity. Having put off the old, put on the new. From verses 12 through 17, there's a list of things that we put on because it's a result of what's expected of us as the elect of God or the chosen of God. The result of a changed heart is why we do these things. It's what's expected of us, but it will come out of a heart of love and out of a heart of devotion, a heart that's grounded and settled and rooted and built up, committed to the cause of Christ, Chapter 3, verse 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, 
kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Paul is listing the qualities that is expected by those who find their identity in Jesus Christ. Verse 13, patience. For, or for, he says forbearing. I'm, I'm using the word patience. And forgiveness. Verse 14, he says, is the most important quality of all. And above all these, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Another translation puts it this way, clothe yourself with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. It sounds like a slogan from the 1960s, but I think it's true. In a spiritual sense, it's true. If we live in patience, forbearing one another, forgiving, and then in verse 14, love, verse 15 says, the peace of God will then rule in your heart. The peace of God is the result of having these things alive, and active in your heart. Verse 16, let the word of God dwell in you and give you wisdom. Verse 17, in whatever you do, do it well. Do it in the name of Jesus. My son, my daughter, always remember who you are. I'd like to close with a, a phrase that's mentioned three times in the passage that we looked at this morning. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Abounding therein with thanksgiving is the one I'd like to look at. Chapter 3, verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which ye are called in one body and be ye thankful. That's the phrase I'd like to, you to notice and be thankful. Verse 17. And whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Thankfulness. Being thankful. For what? In each of these instances, it's referring to the thankfulness for the work of Jesus, the work that He has done making salvation available for you. Jesus, our Savior, and it refers to his work as our mediator here. And be thankful. Thankful for making it possible that we can be risen in new life with him. When King Edward was a child, he needed to be reminded. Always remember who you are. Base your actions off of who you are. Certain things are expected of you as a child of the King. And this morning I think he's reminding us as well 
allow God to work in your heart, the peace of God to rule in your heart and change your heart so that you will then meet the expectations without the obligation of it. It comes out of a heart of devotion for God so that he can look you in the eye and he can say, my son or my daughter, always remember who you are. If you're able to, would you kneel for prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. I pray that you will be with each of us here this morning as we look at your word and your message to us today. Help us to always remember who we are and to be thankful for the work of your Son on the cross as our Savior and as our mediator. I pray that our worship will have been acceptable to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.